0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Hello and welcome to this afternoon session. Uh, we have a fireside chat with Group Chief Executive of Places for People, David Cowens. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. David is a has over 30 years experience of housing, urban regeneration, mixed tenure and mixed use development, property management and financial management, leading strategic change in large and small organizations. Um, he is a fellow of the Institute of Housing, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, a fellow of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, a chartered director of the Institute of Directors and has an MBA from Birmingham University. He's also an academic admission of the Academy of Urbanism and visiting fellow of Cambridge University. So first of all, David, let me welcome you to the Festival of Place.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So the idea of a fireside chat is really just that for the audience. We're going to have a conversation, um, uh, an an informal talk about some of the the challenges that we see in the market, that David sees in the market. And then you're welcome to post uh, questions to us. So, um, David, I'm going to kick off uh, with just a question about what you're seeing right now. Um, So we've just come uh, through um, quite a challenging spring. We're coming or we're in uh, a second uh, national lockdown. Um, I know that you were talking, uh, you talked to me before about all the calls you made during um, COVID to see how people were. And I think it it might just be a really um, good place to start to, to tell me about now for you, what you're seeing right now.
1: Okay, well, we're seeing um, communities managing, um, these are hackneyed words, but they're true anyway, an unprecedented challenge to public health, to community cohesion, uh, to mental health, to just about every fabric of our society. And the way that people are handling it, it seems to be on the whole, is amazing. And it uh, gives a lie to the idea that society uh, isn't resilient, because it seems to me to be exactly that. Um, And I think those of us who are involved in the creation and management of places um, should learn and are learning a lot from this particular uh, pandemic about the way in which communities are the strength of the places they they live in. We flatter ourselves that it's design and uh, building maintenance and property management. And those things are all crucially important. But it is the spirit that people bring to their communities and their places that makes the real difference. And that comes from themselves. Um, we, as you say, we did about 58,000 calls to make sure people were okay. Funding, that, that's all it was. Um, and the amount of kindness and community spiritedness that one came across was um, inordinate, it, impressive. And for years as a group, we've always supported a Good Neighbourhood um, Award, and Good Neighbour Award, because it seems to me that um, the way people bring themselves to their membership of society is, is crucial. and It's a very personal set of decisions they make. And they are massively kind is the only word I can use to describe it, really. And the one thing that I I'm was impressed by is the people who win Good Neighbour Awards never understand why they're being recognised. That's what makes them so special. What they do, they don't regard as different. Um, so I'm seeing that um, as well as the things that everybody else is seeing. And I'm also seeing... Um, Um, A response from our staff that is amazing and that people are still going out doing repairs, they're still going out and managing developments, they're still on building sites. Um, We've responded really quickly with all the normal things like PPE. Um, As we go into um, a second response to the pandemic, and people I've been talking to, everyone's a virologist these days, so I don't want to get into that, but most pandemics seem to have three phases. Uh, The middle one on the whole tends to be the worst, uh, but they all still have three phases. So even after we get through this one, then we've got another one. Um, So this is a long-term battle. It's not a a short-term thing. And the way in which we engage with our staff and the people whose communities we work with is critical. It will define us. How we manage this will define us both as a society as individuals and leaders, and those communities will also be defined by it. So I'm seeing a lot from this.
0: So when was the moment when you said, let's call 58,000 people? What was going on then, and what was the reaction?
1: I think the issue was that um, when the first lockdown happened, we weren't getting a lot of contact um, because clearly we couldn't go out, and a lot of people didn't want us to be in their homes, We've always had our own contact centre. It seemed logical to uh, ask our colleagues to be more proactive and actually ring people up and saying, how are you? And that led to a whole pile of things, people saying, well, I can't get any groceries, to um, all sorts of support propositions. And we also have a thing called the Star Awards within the organisation. And there are numerous stories of our colleagues delivering food to people, uh, one bunch of... uh, Maintenance guys decided to build a community building for a bunch of people, not so they could meet together, but, but afterwards they would have somewhere to meet. They're just story after story after story uh, of immense. Um, again, I have to use the word kindness. There's no other word for it. it might be a bit trite, or um, do we live in a society where kindness is corny? I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think it's a good thing, and it uh, it ought to be celebrated. we for years as a group we've. Um, being a sponsor, we we're one of the first sponsors of the British Citizenship Award. It strikes me that there's a lot of people who want to be negative about human behavior. We should, some of us, uh, hopefully many more of us, be the guardians of highlighting good public behavior and good uh, individual performance in communities and individuals who actually add strength to their communities. Um, should be celebrated. So we need, one of the conversations we need to do more, have more of is how do we make more of, um, the way in which people bring something positive to society because we don't do enough of it.
0: You said um, that designers and maybe developers too. We flatter ourselves that it's uh, it's it's us that creates the community, but it isn't. But what what are the but what is our our role, I suppose, as a, or the role of designers and developers and and local well, ca- councils? I, in- think,
1: I think I said that the the roles that we bring in our various professional disciplines are crucial, but they don't make the communities of themselves. Um, you could construct a fantastically well designed development with all of the infrastructure with spectacular facilities for people and no one might live there um, so it would be possible to do that without anybody living there at all so by definition it must be therefore the people who occupy the uh, the buildings who are the community it seems to me um, and maybe that's a provocative comment and maybe people want to argue with that but I would have thought it was self-evident that doesn't mean therefore that we would should not We should let those communities down by providing poor quality design and poor quality uh, build and poor quality maintenance and management. Of course, they should all be of the highest standard, but they don't necessarily of themselves make the communities, was my point.
0: So... Um, I want to move because you've been writing recently about about climate change and about uh, that change, and we know that covid nineteen is you know is linked to to climate change but in many ways i i know you've you've said and i'm sure you um you would agree that this uh this health crisis is one of perhaps many that we will face um going forward so i i guess m- maybe just a bit about about your um vision of the of the challenges that we need to tackle and where we are on the road to creating net zero homes, retrofitting homes, um, and, the, and the many long list of things that we need to do to, to build more resilient places.
1: Right, Christine, you're very brave. You could have a whole conference just on this and there are many conferences just on this. Um, for me, the debate's got to move beyond whether we should be doing something about climate change. That, that ship has sailed. Let's hope it hasn't sunk but it's definitely sailed. The debate for me is all around the word how. So, um, of course, we need to do whatever we can to uh, sustain a, a society and a world that we can live in. It's just an obvious comment. But saying that over and over and over doesn't get us anywhere. So, as a business, we had a sustainability strategy quite a long time ago. But the big issue for me is how we collaborate together to find the ways of getting to zero carbon, of dealing with different heating systems, of researching material science and all the things we need to be able to do to give an answer to the question, how do we get to achieve our zero carbon and other sustainability targets within the timescales even government's talking about? Because it seems to me like a lot of people talk about that, but when you ask the question, how are we going to do that, there's a bit of a silence. So our approach as a group... um, has been to try and do lots and lots of research. So we did a, quite a few uh, EU-funded research. Well, we can still get those, of course. Um, um, and one was uh, about 100 properties in Paddington. We got the answer to the question, how do we retrofit 1970s-built properties to get us to zero carbon? What does it involve? And crucially, how much does it cost? Because the truth is, As we go into this in more and more detail, we may find there are some assets that are technically impossible to do anything with, uh, or uh, they're not commercially possible to do anything with. And what are we going to do about them? And maybe we're starting to see the early signs of some significant regeneration programs, perhaps not based on um, built design or uh, built standards, or perhaps socioeconomic decline, which have hitherto been the drivers for these, but they will be driven largely by sustainability questions. And I think that's inevitable as we move forward into this space. So it isn't just about the new build design standards. It is very much about the vast majority of the the housing stock is already here. And what do we do with that then? And I I called in my own recently for more collaborative work. We've all got this problem. Um, and yet the amount of collaborative work that goes on is minuscule. It hardly happens at all. You would have thought it was a screamingly obvious call to arms for us all to work together, to pool our resources, to answer the question, how do we successfully, in practical terms, tackle climate change? And yet it doesn't happen. So I don't understand that. Now, I understand that organisations have a choice about do they want to be in charge of a problem or part of a solution. I'll plant my flag every day of the week and twice on Sundays and being part of the solution. And the question is, why doesn't everybody else want to do that? And if they do, because I guess they will all say they do, why isn't the more collaborative working was the essence of the block. I still think that's a big issue and I think we need to answer that. If everyone's trying to do their own thing, inevitably, we risk an extremely, dare I say, glacial response, uh, I worry about that because that implies movement, um, or it might not happen at all. And we will all then be very um, self-righteous about what we did ourselves, but it didn't make a difference. And I think we all ought to be in this to make a difference.
0: I, I think this idea of being in charge of a problem certainly describes where we are right now. But I think this this uh, this conversation, I, I mean, it's a hard Conversation, isn't it? To say, you know, either you're saying these properties are obsolescent, or we've got to spend a lot of money um, bringing them, you know, into uh, a decent standard of of insulation or to to a net zero level. Um, So if we get into the nitty gritty of that conversation, you know, is it when you're looking at a property and saying, is it financially Technically possible to upgrade it to to net zero now, um, or the alternative, which is also carbon heavy, which is demolish and rebuild. I mean, how do we begin to you know do we do we have the language uh, and the the kind of um, even the calculation to make those decisions? Do we already know how to decide?
1: Well, if anybody does, if they'll email me after this call, I'd be delighted to talk to them. Right? Because I think the answer, unfortunately, is a is a maybe and in parts and it's developing and we're thinking about it. But that's all too late for me. So, I mean, I've, I'll give you lots and lots and lots of examples of individual projects. Some of them are quite small, like how does one turn a 12-bed hostel into an exemplar of every sensible means of heating, which we're doing in Norwich at the moment as part of an EU-funded scheme. How does one work with a building research establishment about new forms of brick that aren't carbon heavy because they still are yet, but there's some experimental versions? How do we move to uh, modern methods of construction at scale quickly so everyone's doing it at one level or another? But the question isn't how do you make MMC work; it's how do you move quickly to scale because that's where you get the benefits. And. um, That We have some linkages with Urban Splash and Ilk and all sorts of other people who try and answer that question, but it needs to be a real call for everybody to work together. I mean, it seems to me to be an absolute screaming no-brainer that we ought to be having a lot more collaborative activity. And look, I know we're in a competitive industry, but the reality is we're not competitive about climate change, surely. And also, there's enough housing requirement in this country for everybody who currently works in it to have enough work for their entire careers. So what, honestly, are we competing about is a really interesting question. I know some of the obvious answers, um, but does it really matter? And the last issue for me is, I don't know about anybody else, but I've never been a big fan of zero-sum game thinking the idea that there's only a little cake, so we all fight about who gets what share of it. Our smart move, surely, for ourselves, is to work out how to make a bigger damn cake, isn't it? Isn't that the real exam question we should be setting ourselves? How do we make the cake bigger? How do we use equity instead of grant? Anything in the areas of finance, development, um, science, technology, design, the way in which places get built, Surely that's got to be the, uh, the centrality of the argument. If it isn't, could somebody please tell me what it is?
0: I want to pick up about, on modern methods of construction because this question of scale comes up again and again. People who have tried it and said, look, the way that we build out sites, the way that the capital comes in, it's just not possible. But I know that um, you've been working on partnerships. Can you talk a little bit about making MMC work?
1: Well, the, the issue for me is, and it's always been the issue, is how does one get to a modern methods of construction proposition that's commercially on a par with traditional build costs? That's always been the holy grail. Put aside the obvious issues about design and the quality of the build and the factory process, that gets a lot of attention. Moving to a situation where it's a a commercial proposition and it doesn't sink residual land value models is really the exam question. So the work we've been doing with Oki has been designed around that. Um, and we've been working with all sorts of other people. And frankly, I will go with whoever gets us to that answer the quickest. And I know that Holmes England and others have made some equity uh, plays into MMC providers, but where is the real question about how do you get to scale the quickest? And what would be the quickest route to that? And then we all ought to pl- pl- go into that. The danger is that we end up with a lot of providers all fighting over my uh, famous small cake and actually we never get to scale at all and we end up with multiple, huge numbers of providers all producing pretty good um, models but we never get to scale. So the question has to be, how do you get to scale? That's what drives, for me, the question about MMC. Put aside all the obvious stuff about build standards and quality materials and all the rest of it. If you can't get to commercial scale, it doesn't happen because of that. And there are people who have established MMC propositions, even within their own businesses, who have not used them because they couldn't make, meet the commercial tests. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it's is – it, is, it, is it good uh, good manners to talk about money? Because you have to talk about money, otherwise it just doesn't happen. And everybody really feels let down that this great idea over here never happened because well, nobody could make it commercially work it seems to me. And if that's an elephant in the room, I'd be surprised.
0: I, I, I think that is the elephant in the room when it comes to climate change because isn't the answer to why we haven't done all of these things is because we couldn't commercially make them work. And is that what's stopping retrofit? Is that what's stopping it? So, you know, how do we get... And is ESG unlocking some of that financial problem? Is that turning a corner for people? You know, is there going to be money to make these changes?
1: Uh, not yet. And I think that where there is potentially an answer is in collaborative working to try and find smart and commercial methodologies for delivering this. So I mentioned uh, that scheme in with 100 properties. We found out how we could do it. We know how much it costs. The next piece of work is how do you get it done for half that price? So there is an iterative process of gradually developing a learning by doing. My point is, why aren't we all doing it together? What's the point of me finding that out if somebody else down the road doesn't know that, am I supposed to keep that a secret and not let them know? I mean, it's, what what world does that look like? Um, and it seems to me that there's some answers in that approach about learning by doing, understanding the real question. How do you get EPC two and above, sorry, C and above, and how do you do it commercially and keep working until you get an answer? And then once you've cracked it, you then roll it out. seems to me to have some legs in it. Equally, how do you make heat batteries work? There's a very nascent technology in heat batteries. We put 700 in, in properties in Scotland, to learn how it works. The reality is that it doesn't massively change people's energy behaviours, but it does allow them to afford to heat their places. So you get a different human response rather than an obvious climate change response. But we learned from that, that there were different things we could do. The next iteration would be more effective. That's really where I'm going with this, really. It has to be a collective exercise in gradual learning, testing in the field, and then getting to a commerciality that then allows us to do it at scale. You
0: know, you've talked about... Bringing it to scale, and you know, automation and MMC. There is fear, I suppose, um, about the construction workers. Uh, you know, what what do we do if we if we do adopt these modern ways of working, many of which require fewer uh, construction workers to deliver? Um, what needs to be in place, do you think? Is that something that you think about? But what what needs to happen to actually either um, support them uh, if the, if some of those jobs go away through this?
1: The, the biggest issue. Um, for me, is the way in which small and medium enterprises in construction, house building and development are currently uh, in a position where their cash flows are squeezed to almost non-existence. Now, I know that if you're running one of those outfits, that's not a discussion you necessarily want to have for all the obvious reasons. But we need to come up with propositions that allow us to support those SME operations to keep um, construction workers in work. So we Come up with a proposal which we propose to government that we use our fund management arm to create a model that allows us to acquire properties from SMEs who are half finished or coming to the end at um, an agreed price to allow them to be cash flowed to do the next scheme. So I don't think there's one answer to your question. It's a good question. I also don't necessarily believe that MMC squeezes out traditional construction jobs. I think the reality is. Um, there's a diminution in the skilled construction workforce as it is. So I would see MMC as additionality rather than replacement, although it'd be interesting to hear the views about that. And also MMC is particularly useful for certain types of construction and not for others. So I think the, rea- the idea that, you know, everybody's going to have a house built by a robot next Friday is just out with the reality. Um, the big issue for me. As how does one create um, construction careers that um, are not so lumpy that every time there's a major recession, you end up with large numbers of them, Um, those people not wanting to work and had business again. Uh, If you go and you see in the UK, the odds are high that you get in a taxi and the person driving a taxi was a construction worker. Um, So there are lots of dimensions to that question for me, and I don't see it again. At the, at the risk of overusing over the phrase, a zero-sum game. Traditional construction plus MMC plus means of construction yet to be invented, such as robotic building, are all additional elements for me. They're not replacements. And certainly one will need to support another to the point at which it gets to be commercial.
0: I wanted to ask you about um, about the government. Uh, and whether you think they're providing the leadership on this that we need?
1: well, it depends leadership on what. Um, I think um there are lots of things government could be doing that they're uh, they're not. Um, but the reality is there are many issues for that, many reasons for that, and Covid nineteen has created a, an absolute a um, uh, bowling down a ball down the Skit lally, it seems to me, about everything. It's just thrown everything to the winds, it seems to me. You often, if you, uh, uh, I don't watch the news anymore, it's not good for my mental health, but if you did, the reality is that um, you'd think there was only one issue happening in the world right now. Uh, And the reality is it's just like it was with this. And this has multiplied problems, not just uh, added to them. So I think government is leading in areas um, and not in others. So it's got a view about planning, which is interesting. It could deal with a broader debate about planning. Some of the things they're proposing I think are good things and some of them are not. Um, there's a problem in the, in the UK about tenure. We're too obsessed with tenure. I think we should be more obsessed with building people's houses to live in and then worrying about the tenure when we've done that is my honest view. And I think worrying about tenure at the very beginning actually can have an impact on the, on the supply of individual properties. And it creates a zero-sum game. Um, it just okay, so does. The ambition. If the right resource, then by definition, people bid against it. They don't think, how can I do clever things outside that? And I think we need to find ways of really getting innovation to the fore. I don't think we do enough about that. It's no secret to those who know me that I've said this for years. We're not innovative enough. We're very, very, very focused on what happens in the UK. We don't look outward enough. Um, I was a judge judge on the Wolfson uh, Economic Prize, and loads of Northern European ideas came out of that about how you could do things differently, how you could make land use work better, how you could extract land value to pay for infrastructure, but we don't embrace them. Equally, the way in which we create places could be significantly different. The way the housing market works is not really understood. And if you look at Northern Europe, 10% 10% of all construction is the likes of you and I building our own home. Not the case here. Why not? Um, we don't do enough to expose ourselves to internal criticism. And we, we tend to be too focused on what happens in the UK is the benchmark. It's not the benchmark. We produce the, the smallest houses in Europe. And we demonstrably, obviously, although we are getting better, uh, not don't build enough of them. So I would focus on that myself. I'm not saying tenure isn't important. I'm saying it's not a moot point if you haven't got enough houses in the first place.
0: I wanted to ask you about cars um, and the way that we're still designing places at the moment. It's a kind of a moment, uh, an unusual moment where we've got private ownership uh, rising, but also the sense that, you know, we've for reasons of air pollution and health, we want to have these kind of smaller, more compact cities. So what are you thinking about uh, cars at the moment and how we design places? For
1: cars or with cars? Well, there's a transport issue generally. It's not just cars. I mean, if you go in any major city at the moment, what you're really faced with is uh, how every second vehicle is a white van Um, because the reality is that the the internet shopping explosion not only has recast the future of city centres, which in my view are going to be the places where the very old and the very young live in the future with different economies to those they have today, it's also changed the way we transport things. <clears throat> so it isn't just about cars, it's what forms of transport generally. And the reality is, if we did move to electric cars very quickly, there's a very, very good question about how would the, the grid support the demand, because all the evidence I've seen suggests it wouldn't. So the idea that you can just deal with cars as a one-off um, and it's certainly not just a housing design issue about car parking and all the rest of it and restricting cars and cities. They all, they all have roles. But again, we're back into the how do we make it commercially work? How is it possible to have a, a sensible, workable proposition where the majority of transport does not produce the carbon it produces now? And therefore, the only answer I see is electric. Um, there are versions of hydrogen cars, but they're very dangerous to drive. Uh, perhaps some of us might, might like that, but um, there may well be a solution farther down the road, but simply latching on to one answer doesn't seem to be to be practical, and there are lots of people in the motor industry who know a lot more about this than I do who are working really hard to try and make electric transport work. Whoever really cracks it is going to make serious money, as indeed Mr Musk already has. Um, but the scale that that would be required to do to make the difference it would be required to do would transform the way places operate. Now, is it still a box with wheels on? Yes. Does it still need to park somewhere? Yes. Are there likely to be new models of fractional ownership and shared ownership of vehicles and more carpooling? Yes. Is it going to make a massive difference to the built environment? Really interesting question. Are you going to have large numbers of city centre car parks? Probably not. Are people likely to share with their next-door neighbours? Possibly. Um, But it's difficult to see, and again, i would be interested in other views about this, how in the next 10 years you're going to see a massive shift in the built environment based on a different form of propulsion for transport.
0: There's a a question from Pam Alexander um, who is asking, um, are Homes England the answer to ensuring that collaboration delivers scale, at least through RSPs?
1: Hi, Pam. Um, I don't know what the question is. Um, if, if government, because Holmes England is an agent of government and it presumably exists to do what government tells it to do, if government sets out the agenda clearer, then the answer to your question might be different. But I don't get a sense that there's enough effort going into being radical enough about, I mean, I'll pick on that idea of a fund. You know, I don't understand why we haven't got this up and running now. So why haven't we got this now as an underpinning to SME construction businesses to keep them moving, keep them employing the very people we're worried will leave the industry, keep them producing good properties, using it to influence the design of what they build. I don't know why we haven't got that up now. We could have that now, um, but we haven't got it now. And the grant system um, inevitably is a political vehicle. Of course it is and the government of the day will have a view about what it wants the outcomes of that grand programme to be. And the current government has a view about home ownership being important. But I go back to my point. If you're always dealing with the tenure, we'll always be in a situation where we have a zero-sum game. So let's just turn to another question, which is, what, what radical set of actions would build more houses? And then when you've done that, how do you then make them affordable to people? But we look at it the wrong way around, it seems to me. So I'm not dodging your question, but I don't think you can answer it without understanding what it is government wants to achieve. And that's where the effort needs to be going into.
0: So with tenure, just to probe that, the reason why the emphasis is on tenure is to kind of avoid slums or, you know, neighborhoods full of the same kinds of people with the same level of wealth. I mean, what what do you, if you take away the emphasis on tenure at the beginning, does that does is there a fear that actually that will return?
1: No, the opposite. Because the reality is, if you build everything to the standards that could be used in any tenure, you take that you take that at the occasion. You just do, and then you apply financial instruments later, so you don't have different standards for the affordable bit of the estate and the housing for sale bit of the estate. You teach it a bit as real estate, and then apply the means by which people access it later. And by later, I don't mean two years later, I mean as part of a process, put at the back end of it. But the emphasis has to be about how does one get to the production of the most possible good quality neighbourhoods with the resources we have, is the exam question for me. And I know people say, oh, well, th- we can't solve everything until everything's dealt with, Right and I can't remember who it was, I think it was Teddy Rodevers, or no, it was Truman, and this great, when he was asked what people should do to avert a crisis, he said, do what you can with what you've got where you are. And I think that's a really good sort of measure for us now. We should all be doing whatever we can with what we've got rather than talking about how great it would be if everybody else was doing different things. Um, so my focus is on trying to get, and I'm not, you, you can't win with this debate because it ends up very polarised, because you want more properties, people say you know you don't care about people who can't afford them. That's just not true. The reality is we'll never get to the numbers we need if we do it the way we're doing it now, is my contention. And we never have. So we're getting better, which is great, wonderful. I'll give you a little example. If most people will show you a graph which talks about the huge growth in council housing after the Second World War. And the argument goes, if only we got up there it would solve everything. No one says how to do that other than squillions of more resources. But the reality is what nobody tells you is if you take another graph, which is the net additions in the housing stock, it's actually much more of an even line because after the Second World War, there were massive slum clearance programs. Hundreds of thousands of properties were being torn down across the UK. So these lines of new build were not new supply. And so understanding a bit more detail what the, the data is actually telling us is perhaps more important.
0: There's a question here from Justin Nicholson from Fathom Architects. How much do you think the housing crisis is due to under occupation and how can that be improved?
1: It's an interesting question, isn't it? About we are an overhoused nation if you look at the statistics. But unless we're going to have some form of um, committee deciding who can live where, I don't see how that's going to be allocated, frankly. I don't say that to be facetious. I say because it it's true. Um, if the market allocates accommodation based on a set of metrics we currently use, inevitably some people will get extra bedrooms. But equally, even in the social housing sector, people who had three kids and have all grown up, you might have a single person in a three-bedroom house. And yes, there are point systems and all sorts of ways of changing that. They're very slow. Um, So there's a real problem, I think, about that argument about we're overprovided for because the number of bedrooms is greater than the per capita use of the bedrooms. Because as a statistic, it's true. But unless somebody invents a process um, to get around that, I don't know the answer to how you solve that. And equally, if you listen to a lot of commentators about new house building supply, they'll tell you that the population wants two and three bedroom properties. You look at it by, there's lots of data about this, about by region, what's required. But understandably, for commercial reasons, people are building slightly bigger houses. So what set of metrics would you adopt to make a greater alignment between the population and the number of bedrooms it has in a way that is politically acceptable? There's a good exam question.
0: There's also the question of the financialization of the market. So how many of those uh, properties are uninhabited, for example? The number of vacant homes is, is always rising as well. So either ones that are obsolete or uh, they're often at the very bottom worst stock or they're the very, very highest stock, uh, but they're actually empty.
1: And there are examples. I mean, in French, for example, of a, a system of tax breaks that makes it advantageous for people to acquire those properties and get them back into use. There are loads of examples of that. I mean, the federal tax credit system in the US, um, I'm familiar with. It's a bit, it's not as clear as a lot of the French systems. But there are examples throughout the world of people who are using tax breaks to bring underused property back into use. Why don't we use them? I still, to this day, don't understand why we don't use venture capital trusts or enterprise investment schemes that we already have to apply to those sorts of properties to make the system work better but we don't and I I can't see why not there are lots of tools we already have that if applied in an innovative way could tackle some of those issues and might even provide some incentives to help people move out of under occupied homes the biggest issue for me is the retirement market as a nation we're vastly under provided for compared to the united states new zealand and australia for retirement Properties—the place when you get to uh, want to retire, you'd want to live in. So people on the whole tend not to move. We did a lot of research among old people, and their view was: if such places existed, they would move to them, which would then be another process of helping the, the housing stock adjust to uh, the demographic uh, requirements of the nation. But we don't do that, and I think government could show a lead in promoting those sorts of schemes. And again, we made a proposal to government to support a fund to create some exemplar schemes for elderly person villages to get them into a point where they're an asset class. My own view, this is an asset class, is where student housing was 20 years ago. It just needs to prove itself. Once it proves itself, institutional finance will pour into it. There are tons of ideas about how we could adopt to solve a lot of these issues. The question is, how do we get them debated in a practical way? And fundamentally, do something about it. Well,
0: that's what we're here today. But the doing doing has to happen. But certainly the debate is happening. Um, There's a question here from Kathy Gibbs. Uh, How do we incentivize using existing assets, especially those which will be financially punitive to retrofit?
1: Well, I think there's some political choices there about does one provide high levels of uh, state grant for those properties? Um, It gets pretty extreme. You've got grade one listed properties, um, which might be quite difficult to retrofit. And then the other extreme, you have quite small mine workers cottages um, that are solid stone built. They would be really difficult to deal with. There are techniques to deal with it, but it's expensive. So there's one answer is the throw money at it answer. The other answer is to uh, repurpose those properties for other purposes. Um, before the pandemic I would maybe have suggested maybe not um, but they re- repurpose them um, ultimately though there is the question about is something so far gone that it has a sustainable use and that's when it gets difficult and the answer for some properties logically would be that they don't have a sustainable use and you might have to do something else with them and that would depend on a case by case basis so I think there are things one can do to uh, make stranded assets um, able to be brought back into the mainstream, but I don't, I don't see any debate about that. And if I, if I'm wrong, and somebody knows where's the debate, please tell me, and I'll be very happy to get engaged in it.
0: Is material reuse of those properties something that's on your radar? If it's a stranded asset, well, so you know-
1: I, I think that's one of the issues, given that a lot of the carbon usages in the materials themselves. Reusage of them would be an obvious area. That can be quite expensive, although there are some great examples in the UK of museums that are being completely uplifted from inner-city towns. Uh, So maybe we could get uh, a housing museum somewhere. I know there's one in Birmingham, um, which is very, very attractive, but some sort of innovative approaches to reusing those buildings for... Purposes we've not considered yet would seem to be an obvious area for, for debate and exploration.
0: I wanted to change uh, tack just uh, slightly and because this is you know about the broader place and talk about um, some of the things that are being accelerated by the covid uh, pandemic and uh, one of them is the high street um, and I wanted to talk to ask you about your opinion about what's happening to the high street now and you know now we've got permitted development coming in which is going to allow shops to be converted into homes. what's your opinion of the direction of travel of the high street, what should be done, what needs to be saved and 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 what should we be um what should, what are we fighting for?
1: Well, I'd like to fight for places that are beautiful. Um, I know it's that's been used before, but a lot of our older town centers are really, really nice, um, and we need to find a way of repurposing them, which actually makes them purposeful for the next century rather than destroys them. So knocking them down. Maybe not the best idea. We might have no option because of, of some of the sustainability issues, but nonetheless, a new vision for town centres is that they will be the place where the very old and the very young live cheek by jowl with new economies, nighttime economies, daytime economies that will support a very large residential population, which has its impact on sustainability because they won't be traveling so far. And there is a, it seems to me, a dichotomy about an alleged COVID response to uh, country living against a, a deep desire for people to live in communities where they can rely on each other. So I don't see necessarily you can have both. Um, and I think there's a lot of effort needs to be done by planners and others. Um, as, as a group, we've always supported the Young Planner of the Year because there's a lot of creativity and a lot of... Um, faith I have in how young planners are going to play a role in these sorts of things in the future, and really turn older places into places fit for the future. Most people one knows if they're very old or they're very young, like the idea of living in places where there are other people, They like the idea of living in a place where facilities are close to them, Um, and I think as a group we've always been keen on putting infrastructure into new developments. if you've already got the infrastructure there, it seems to me to be not a bigger stretch to then build around them to use the existing infrastructure rather than build a new infrastructure somewhere else. Um, and the winning entry of the Wolfson Prize, if those of you who followed it, had that at its heart. How did one use existing um, neighbourhoods and infrastructure, transport and other infrastructures, and build density around them in order to make better use of them. So the future of towns is is that for me. It's going to require new approaches to management. It's going to require the ability of businesses to manage mixed-use, mixed-tenure neighbourhoods. And I'd love to talk to people about that because as far as I know, Place for People is the only business that does that. I'd love to meet others who are doing that because it's going to need a big shift very quickly. The ability to manage commercial And different tenure types in one overall uh, envelope is going to be a determining factor about how successful these places are going to be. And it may well be some local authorities have a role to play. I suspect the reality is there'll be a mixed provision. And we need to get on with creating that capability so we can make these new town centres work.
0: One of the things highlighted through the um, COVID crisis was access to green space from these uh, city centres and uh, just the level of green and t- discussion of green. Um, and of course, they're linked to health and well wellbeing. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of discussion over the last years. It's not new about trees, trees being cut down, trees being planted. Um, it's kind of come up again around HS2, but of course, there was Sheffield um, and kind of uh, a lot of talk about what happened there um, and the way that people... We're we're striving to it. What's your view on greenness? I guess uh, oh. the the importance of greenness. And I'm i you know when you're talking about the beauty of town centres, I'm thinking of places like Bolton Town Centre, which has you know a fantastic town hall and a library. It's got a lot of very um, shops that are in, in pretty um, tough shape at the moment, but certainly the bones of it are very beautiful. But not particularly green in the terms of leafy. Um, so so what are your thinking around uh, around blue and green infrastructure?
1: Well, some of the most attractive places in the UK uh, are like that because of decisions made by our predecessors who determined they would leave the place better than they found it. So I happened to be in Harrogate um, in a weekend Well, we can still move about. That place uh, had virtually the entire town centre endowed as a park. There are parks in London and most major cities that were endowed. Um, we have a big development in Gilston Park in Hertfordshire. We take through the planning system. More than half of the land use will be in the creation of a new um, urban park. So we've got, as developers, to me, really important roles to play in making sure our places are very effective. We did the, uh, the Brooklands development, Milton Keynes. We put the suds and all of the um, green infrastructure in first then the primary school with Milton Keynes Council, then we start on the housing. So I would argue for quite a radical approach to this, really, because it does enhance values. Um, I know that isn't what most people do, and I understand completely all of the commercial strictures that make that difficult. But we need to find a way of being less adversarial between the development industry, local authorities, um, and work together to create those places that will be attractive in the future because they will retain their values. They'll drive higher values. They'll be less difficult to maintain, um, and they'll just be better places. Now, again, I know that's easier said than done, but it strikes me, unless we start making some radical shifts fairly soon, we're going to be having this conversation for the next 20 years and maybe not getting anywhere as fast as we'd like to. I'd love that not to be the case but I think it's down to all of us to start thinking about how we're going to do things differently.
0: You talked about collaboration being key to us getting there. What uh, You mentioned competition as one barrier to collaboration or a perceived competition, even though the cake might be big enough already. Um, what do you see as other barriers to, com- to co- true
1: collaboration? I think it's entirely possible to collaborate and compete. I think it's entirely possible to do both. Um, you can all sometimes compete about a level of collaboration you, you, you're putting together, but if one collaborates on things like a response to climate change, if we all learn how to do it, we all become more competitive. Um, so I don't see them again as necessarily dichotomous. I think they are they're mutually linked in my view. Right? Doing it is is hard, but it's worth doing. So I don't think that's a barrier. I think there is an issue about organizational boundaries sometimes. And I do, and that's, we're all guilty of that to one degree or another. And I think there are issues about not invented here sometimes. Um There are lots of issues that prevent collaboration. I think what that, my plea is, because it is a plea, is we need to try and find ways around that. Otherwise, we won't make the progress we need to make. And I think that's self-evident. So I'm open to anybody who wants to have a conversation about how we can do more collaborative things in order to get. To a better place faster.
0: I want to ask you about the planning white paper and the the changes proposed by government. You said that you thought there were some good ideas in there, but what's your reaction to it?
1: Well, I mean, it's really problematic. This idea that the green belt is universally seen as the as the summit of hell when clearly it isn't, uh, and there are very unattractive bits of uh, cities that are edging on the green belt that you know, could be developed. And you could make a quid quo about bringing more green into the the current urban belt. There could be much more um, um, innovation around that. I worry a lot about permitted development driving low standards because in theory it's a great idea, isn't it, to allow people to have a lot more um, control, to be more innovative. But what if they're not innovative? And what if they're just really trying to milk an existing asset which drives the slums of the future? That cannot be right. So I worry about that a lot. I worry about, um, because we haven't really got the land value capture thing right, that we could drive out um, some affordable housing, even though I'm an advocate of trying to get the numbers right. I don't think we should um, rest on our laurels at all about affordable housing. Nowhere near have we got the numbers we need. I think I'm coming from a point about how do we get more houses built in order to get more affordable housing um, rather than um, focusing on one thing which then prevents us building more properties. That's what worries me. So there are lots of things that are problematic, in it, and a lot of it's in the detail. A lot of it is in, to be honest, infrastructure is the biggest issue I've found in the planning system. So I've got some sympathy. This might make me very unpopular if I'm not already. I don't know. Um, but there are some NIMBYs you've got some sympathy for. There are some you haven't, and some you have. And the ones I've got sympathy for are the people who've been told before that infrastructure will follow, and it just hasn't, um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, there were lots of lots of planning gain monies in local government not spent. Um, some infrastructure just didn't happen. Should we hypothecate planning gain in that locality? There's a whole bunch of things that we need to do to give some faith to those local communities, when we say their services won't be swamped, we mean it. And they can see that we mean it. Um, so I'm a big big advocate, if it's all possible, of providing infrastructure at the very, very early phases, because it's demonstrable proof that we mean what we say when we say infrastructure will come from this development. I was also a big fan of uh, getting the infrastructure commission to see larger developments as part of its remit, so we could drive infrastructure development is part of the housing development and not something separate from it, because it's not separate from it. You look at a, a development of a 1,000 homes, the sewage, the electrics, the water, the schools, the provision of transport are enormous. The idea that one shouldn't put all that together into an appreciation of infrastructure is just beggar's belief, really. And we need to see these places as places. Uh, and equally manage them as places. Management often is the Cinderella service. It doesn't get mentioned. Um, and I've been a, a passionate believer in creating capability across 10 years to be able to manage whole places because why should someone who lives in a particular block or a particular street have to talk to five or six different organisations about the management in that place? It just doesn't make any sense. And unsurprisingly, you get NIMBYs who quote that as well. They say, well, it'll be a mess. And and maybe they've got a point. And maybe we should listen to that a bit more. And maybe we should make sure that when we're promoting places, we look at it uh, as a a managed place for the long term.
0: Do you think the... Current proposals in the planning system uh, have enough nuance then to be able to say if you're zoning places for development or for protection. Is you know is and then on the other hand having permitted development where the infrastructure hasn't been worked out. If you're taking
1: it's not nuanced, and to be honest, I see this as a continuing debate, and we need to be working closely uh, with government and all sorts of other people to make this work. Um, I think zoning or looking at particular types of area and not saying Greenbelt is sacrosanct simply because that was an interesting area for discussion because I can take it up a dozen places that are allegedly on the edge of town centres in the Greenbelt. Nobody's going to do anything in there, you know, abandoned pig farms, all this sort of stuff. That is clearly nonsensical. And equally, it's nonsensical that you then drive the use of playing fields for development in the urban core That doesn't make a lot of sense either. So having some nuance in there and some practical examples and, frankly, a less adversarial relationship of everyone involved to get to um, what what I call ruthless pragmatism uh, might be a good step forward.
0: You mentioned... uh the NIMBYs, the ones that you have sympathy for, maybe there are some that you don't have sympathy for, but maybe just reaching out to talk about, and we, you know, we started this conversation um, with those 58,000 phone calls that you put out during the the the, crisis, the COVID crisis to ask how how people were. Um, so just moving to community consultation and the voice, the voice of NIMBYs and the voice of tenants. I mean, do we hear that voice? Are we listening to people enough and, and
1: I think we, the answer to that should always be no we're not. Even if we think we are, the answer should be no we're not. So we're now doing a major exercise. We have a thing called the Guide to Create a Place for People. It's our Design guide, valid for years. we are doing a major exercise with 4,000 households throughout the UK about what they really felt about a place, what they really valued in it, what do they value in their home, what do they think about a home? Uh, and we fed that into our d- design guide. We're doing a lot of work with existing residents about what works for them, what doesn't. A lot of examples from our operational activities. So uh, being a house builder and a property owner, we get a lot of data from all sorts of operations. And more importantly, some of these things are over 20 years. So we can point to data about how a place is managed and survived over 20 years. Everything from material usage, maintenance costs, levels of antisocial behavior, I mean, everything really. So we're constantly in a place where a dialogue with our customers is the essence of who we are. And that's why I'm more bothered about providing more properties because years ago we created a matrix of economic wherewithal down one axis an age across the top. And then we worked out how many products that were in the housing market for those people. And when we first produced it, there were were four. There are something like 15 now, and government are are starting to adopt this because they're working out where the gaps are and they're trying to fill them. Now, whether or not what they fill them with is a practical proposition is another debate for another day. But they are at least trying to understand where the gaps are between the requirements of the market and what the housing market provides for them. And the housing market perhaps is not the most consumerist part of the UK economy. And perhaps we do need to do a lot more listening to people and trying to respond to them and constantly working with them about could we change nuance here, if we tweak that there, would that work if we did this? That should be our daily bread, in my view. So the answer, are we listening to people? Yes, we are, but it's never enough.
0: It's just a, a final moment of um, perhaps your reflections. We're at a point where there are concerns that a lot of people are going to be losing their jobs. We're on the, the verge of a very um, uncertain time. You talked about maybe the third wave coming back, and that kind of concern about about poverty and a concern about homelessness. You know what? What are your what are your thoughts and uh, and what what should we be doing as an industry um, to, at this time?
1: Well, that's a very, very difficult question. I'm not sure um, anybody could answer it, if I'm honest. It would be too easy to be glib about doing all sorts of things. I think the reality is we can stand by our existing communities. We can support our existing staff. We can try and make sure we use every creative ounce of uh, knowledge and expertise that we have to create new approaches to keep people in jobs best we can. Um, And we should try best we can to make sure that those neighbourhoods are safe, frankly. There's this idea that the home's a safe place. Um, I'm not sure it is. Um, I, I, I might be wrong, but the, if you look at the, uh, the the ROSPA statistics, there are probably as many accidents in the home as there are in a factory. And equally, if you're involved in domestic violence, the home's not a place, safe place for you. And if you're a young child involved in that, it's not a safe place for you either. And the strength of communities supersedes all that for me. And we need to be working very closely with our existing communities, our existing staff, and more importantly, perhaps even than that, with each other, to find a new spirit of collaboration and a new spirit of dumping adversarial approaches in order to help us all get through this. Because it's going to be, and already has been, a tough ride.
0: On that note, I really want to thank you for your frank conversation, being really open with us today and, and really kind of sharing um some of your thoughts about what has been a really interesting and wide ranging discussion. Thank you very, very much, David Cowens.
1: Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye now.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray and you can reach me on Twitter at TCMurray.